That helps. <laughs> All right. Um, so I want to make a, a quick point, which if you're on our email chain or if you follow our Facebook page for the church, you already saw this. But if you don't, if you're not on our email chain, if you're not on Facebook, um, I want to make sure I point this out. And, and really, this is a push to get on our email chain if you're not on it. We sent out a message this week about the series that we're in. We're looking at Jesus's life chronologically and we're jumping ahead. We're jumping ahead a little bit because when you look at the next three major events that actually occur in the timeline, they're covering topics that we've already preached on once, twice, three times in this series. And so we sent out an email with, hey, here are the three next events in Jesus's life. Here are the, here are the passages to read. We've already talked about this. If you need a refresher, here's links to the sermons that dealt with this. But we're really, we're not only asking you as leadership, we're not only asking you to read these on your own and study them on your own. Honestly, we're expecting you to read them on your own and to study them on your own. We are, we are expecting that you all are engaging with God's word deeply on your own outside of Sunday morning. And so we sent out that message with the, with the information that you need. But so if you've been following along, if you remember at the very beginning of this, we sent out the timeline we'd be following. And so if you happen to have that mind for detail, you may notice that the message we're talking about today really kind of jumps forward from the last message we looked at, which was when Jesus chose his apostles. If you're not on the email chain, you have no clue what I'm talking about, talk to us after the service. We'll get you plugged into the email chain so that you can get this information, so that you can be following along on your own as we'd like you all to be doing. Um, but this morning, like I said, we will be jumping ahead a little bit. We're going to be looking at a story in Luke chapter 7, uh, a, a contrast, a very stark comparison of two sinners and how they replied to Jesus. But before we, be, uh, before we begin, before we open God's word, please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for the truth of these words that we sang this morning, Lord. And I pray that the truth of them resonated with these people, that we realized that we weren't just singing lyrics that were arbitrarily created, that we were singing truths about who you are and what you've made available to us. And God, as we prepare to open your word, your holy word, your perfect word, we thank you for it. First and foremost, we thank you for it. And second, we ask that you would teach us from it that you would help us to understand deeper than we ever have before, that these would not be my words, that this would not be my voice, but that this would be you, Lord. Remove me from the equation. Get me out of the way so that these people can see you, so that I can see you and I can learn from you. And I thank you for the privilege that we have this morning to gather and look at your word together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Very good. All right, so we are in Luke 7, starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. 
And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. This is such an interesting juxtaposition between two sinners. Between Simon the Pharisee and this unnamed woman, who the only detail we know about her is she was a sinner. And that phrase in the original language, uh, they're talking about an adult sinner with loose morals. Um, I'm trying to be respectful of all the age differences, but this was, this was someone who they would, have, they would have put at the far end of the spectrum of sinners. And so you have these two people who Jesus interacts with. And first you have Simon the Pharisee. And on the surface, Simon seems to get it. He invites Jesus into his house. He opens it up. He invites Jesus over for this time of fellowship. But then what do we see about how Simon actually interacts with Jesus? It shows a complete lack of cultural hospitality and respect. Those three things that Jesus pointed out. You gave me no water for my feet. You gave me no kiss. You anointed my head with no oil. If you invited someone over to your house in that day, the first thing you provide, I mean, the very first thing you provided for them was water to wash their feet. Because they walked everywhere and they would empty their refuse into the streets and animals used the streets. And so walking made their feet disgusting. And so the very first act of cultural hospitality and respect was to provide you a means to wash your feet so that you would feel welcome in this home. You also, you greeted your guests with a kiss especially if it was a relationship of respect. A kiss was a sign of cultural respect. If you look throughout the Old Testament, it's used when people would enter into the presence of a king or of a king's you know, official representative. There would be a kiss, a significant moment of, thank you for engaging in this with me, I respect you. Simon offered no kiss to Jesus when he came to his house. And then the third aspect of this cultural hospitality was you would anoint your guest's head with oil. Something that smelled nice. And this was just, this wasn't a whole lot of oil. He wasn't washing Jesus' hair. This was just an anointing of, it was a symbol of, I care about you. You've been outside, it's been gross, it's been sweaty. Here's a little bit of oil that'll smell nice. This is a symbol that I care about you. So you have the feet washing, I, res- uh, the feet washing, I, I have hospitality towards you. I welcome you in, I'm glad you're here. You have the kiss, I respect you. You have the oil, I care about you. Simon the Pharisee did none of these things for Jesus. He invites him over and then does absolutely nothing about it. This would be like if I I invite you over, I called on you guys last week, Bruce. I can make eye contact with Bruce. I invite Bruce and Sue over in the middle of winter. It's freezing out, it's slushy, it's gross. They're wrapped up in their coat, they're in their big winter boots just to get through the muck uh, on the sidewalk. And they knock on the door and I just yell out, yeah, yeah, it's open, come on in. 
And then they walk in, and I just leave them standing in the foyer with their coat. I don't offer to take their coat. I don't point out a place here. You can take your shoes off. I've got slippers for you so your feet are warmer and more comfortable. No, no, I just leave them standing in the foyer so they kind of take their own coat off and walk in. Like, does he even want us here? And I'm seated at the table, and I've got my water and everything in front of me. I'm like, yeah, there's stuff in the kitchen, I think. You can go help yourself. There's absolutely, why would you invite someone over and then treat them like this? But this is how Simon the Pharisee engaged with Jesus. And then he even, it goes a little bit beyond that. Because as Jesus starts to interact, as Jesus talks to this woman and allows her to make physical contact with him, what does it say? Simon says, he says, if this man were a prophet. See, Simon has now made up his mind about who Jesus really is. Okay, Jesus claims to be a prophet. He can't be a prophet. He is now doubting who Jesus is, and he's dismissing who Jesus has claimed to be. He says, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Because in Simon's mind, you, you don't have contact with a person like this. She's a lowly sinner. You, you, mm-mm. You're supposed to be a prophet? You don't even know this? You're allowing her to touch you? All right, you clearly can't be who you say you are. So this is how Simon interacts with Jesus. And then in direct opposition to that, presented in direct contrast to that, you have this woman, and all we know about her is she was a sinner. And like I said a phrase earlier, she would have been, you know, at the end of the cultural spectrum of, of sin in the people's minds. And this picture is up here. We've talked about this before, but remember, tables back then weren't like they were now. They would have been a much lower affair. You would have been leaning forward onto a cushion with your feet pointing backwards. And it's kind of odd that she's at this dinner party. Is there anybody else who's like, wait a minute, Simon the Pharisee's house and the sinner woman is here? Why was she invited? Anybody else think that, right? Like I read that and you're like, why, why is she here, right? She wasn't invited. But here's the thing, when Pharisees, when famous people, when influential people would have these big dinner parties, it would occur in a courtyard. And that courtyard would be open to the public. The public was allowed to walk into the courtyard and observe this. It was... It was a little bit of showing off. It was a little bit of, hey, you know, if all the teachers are together, let the public come in and they can listen to our conversation and maybe get smarter. So the public would have been allowed to come into this Pharisee's courtyard to observe this dinner party that he is throwing. But no one would have expected this woman to show up. She knows better. She is such a sinner. She knows better than to walk into the property of a Pharisee and interrupt this dinner party but she does it anyway. And she takes up a position at Jesus' feet as he's reclining at the table. She takes up a position at Jesus' feet and she begins weeping deeply. And this was a deep sign of repentance. And so this woman repentant, repentantly? I'm making up words now. This woman is repenting. There we go. I know that's a real word. She approaches Jesus' feet. She's weeping. And if you notice, everything that the host is supposed to do, this woman does. The host is supposed to wash Jesus' feet. Simon the Pharisee would not, so this woman washed Jesus' feet. The host is supposed to anoint him with oil. He did not, so this woman anoints Jesus with oil. This, the host is supposed to give Jesus a kiss on the cheek. This woman kisses Jesus' feet. Everything that Simon should have done, this sinful woman who by no means was welcome at this dinner party, is doing. She goes to Jesus boldly and humbly, with a repentant heart. She shows him complete respect that he is owed, and she goes above and beyond. See, washing someone's feet, that was reserved for the lowest servant, because that's disgusting to put your hands on someone's feet. 
This woman put her lips on Jesus' feet. She used her hair to wash Jesus' feet. She is completely, reverently submitted to the Lord. And she pours this alabaster, a very fine perfume on Jesus' feet that would have cost an, a great deal of money. This woman loves Jesus as she is best able. She doesn't provide the dinner. She doesn't provide the conversation. She just weeps at his feet and washes them because that is the best she can do. She is pouring herself out before Jesus. And it is such a stark juxtaposition with the behavior and with the heart of Simon the Pharisee, the person who should get it, is contrasted to this woman who does get it. And here's the thing. So that's the difference between Simon and the woman. But really, there's one main similarity between the two. They're equal. They are both sinners in desperate need of forgiveness. And this is true of all of us as well. Everyone needs forgiveness. Make no mistake, when Jesus goes through the parable, what do we see? We see that both people had debts that were forgiven. Everyone needs forgiveness. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. What we think is marking us as righteous, it's like a polluted garment in the face of God's holiness. We have all become like one who is unclean. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, universal. Every single one of us here. I, I am a sinner who is unclean in front of the holiness of God in desperate need of His forgiveness and mercy. The exact same is true of all of you. And everyone who ever has existed, does exist, and will exist. We are not born good. We are not inherently good. We are sinners in need of forgiveness, in need of a Savior. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and His word is not in us. We have all sinned. Every single one of us here, we are in this story, in Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman, we are the sinful woman who have no business being invited to this dinner party and entering in to the presence. We are that sinner. We are that sinful woman. This is what unites Simon and this woman. This is what makes them identical. But what's the difference between the two of them? If they're identical in their need for a Savior but they are so different in their response to Jesus. What's the difference? What is God looking for? Well, let's go back to Isaiah. Isaiah 66, 2. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. God says, this is the person that I'm looking for. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. See, that's the main difference between Simon and this woman is the heart, the heart of humility. Simon didn't have it. Simon saw himself as essentially pure and righteous. I'm a Pharisee. I'm doing it right. I'm at the top of the food chain. I don't really need Jesus. He claims to be a prophet. He lets a woman who's a sinner touch him. Mm -mm. I, I don't need him. 
The woman saw herself appropriately. She saw herself rightly. She realized how sinful she was and how desperately she needed forgiveness. She knew who she was in light of Jesus. And her behavior reveals that heart. And so the question then naturally for us is who am I? We said that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. But am I a sinner like Simon the Pharisee who's just going through the motions? Am I a sinner like Simon the Pharisee who thinks, I'm doing pretty good on my own without Jesus. I don't, I don't really need Jesus. I'll invite him over for a meal, but I don't actually need you here, Jesus. Or am I a sinner like this woman? Am I desperately aware of how broken I am apart from Jesus? Am I desperately aware of my need for the mercy of God and the forgiveness of a Savior who loves me? If we're all sinners, the question then is, what kind of sinner am I? Am I a sinner like Simon who refuses to acknowledge it? Or am I a sinner like this woman who humbles herself before the Lord? I think that's a huge burden that we need to know in our own lives. Because it's so easy, it is so tragically easy to become like Simon. I'm doing pretty good. I haven't murdered anyone. I've never embezzled millions of dollars. I'm doing decently, right? Not like those other sinners out there. There are people way worse than me. No, I'm a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. And I've said this numerous times. The Bible is about God. The Bible is about Jesus. It is always about God. It is always about Jesus. And this story is no different. Sure, we started off with Simon and the woman, but this story is ultimately about Jesus and what happens when sinners encounter Jesus. What happens when unclean encounters Jesus? See, this woman was morally unclean. She was morally impure. There were, there were kind of three main categories of unclean that you could fall into in that culture. You could be physically unclean. Danya mentioned when she, when she began that song, she mentioned the woman with the bleeding problem, and we're actually going to look at her in a little bit. According to Old Testament law, according to the culture, you could be physically unclean. You could be ceremonially unclean. If, if someone died and you were burying them and you had to make contact with that dead body, you were now ceremonially unclean. And then you could also be morally unclean. So what happens in this story, this story provides a brilliant view and perfect look at what happens when unclean encounters Jesus. What does Jesus say to the woman? He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He forgives her sins. And as we look at that parable, when you look at that parable, okay, there's someone who owes me 50 bucks and there's someone who owes me 500 bucks, except it wasn't that. We're talking a year's wages. When you're talking about 500 denarii, you're talking about a year, two years. This is a massive sum of money. This person has no hope of repaying it. The other person owes them just a little bit. Both are forgiven, but what does Jesus say? The one who has much forgiven loves much. And when he's talking about this, when he says, she has her sins, he says, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she has loved much. He's not saying, because she loved much, I forgave her sins. That word that we've translated for, it's a phrase, it's a conjunction that really means it'd be closer to which has resulted in. So because she has had much forgiven, because she understands because she understands how greatly she's been forgiven, she has loved me much. Her love outflows from her understanding of her forgiveness. This is what Jesus is holding up this woman as an example. 
And it's not just this woman. What happens when unclean encounters Jesus? You have Luke 7, 14 to 15. Uh, This is a a dead man. Jesus comes across a funeral procession, and the mother is weeping. She is grieved over her young son, or well, maybe a little bit older, but a, a young man has died, and his mother is grieving. Jesus comes across the funeral procession. Then Jesus came up and touched the bier, the funeral pyre that the body was being carried on. Then Jesus came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. You have ceremonially unclean coming in contact with Jesus. Then we have Luke 8, 43 and 44, and verse 48 as well. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And then down to 48, Jesus says the same thing he said to this woman in Simon the Pharisee's house. In verse 48, he says to this woman with the bleeding problem, and Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. You have physically unclean coming in contact with Jesus. And in Simon the Pharisee's house, you have morally unclean coming in contact with Jesus. And what happens in all three occasions? See, in Old Testament custom, in Old Testament law, in the culture, if you came into contact with unclean, you were now unclean. You were dirtied by coming into contact with the unclean, not Jesus. Unclean comes into contact with God, and He purifies He doesn't become defiled. And that's the beautiful lesson of this story. That please, if you're here, I want you to hear this and take this to heart. I want you to know and understand that you are that sinful woman in desperate need of a Savior, in desperate need of forgiveness and mercy. But I want you to equally understand the story doesn't end there. What happens when unclean comes into contact with God? God purifies. We don't defile God. We don't taint God. We don't bring Him down. God purifies, He cleanses, He redeems. This is incredible, and it happens when we repent. This woman repented at the feet of Jesus, and God promises this to the repentant heart. You go back to Isaiah where He said, this is what I desire. I look for Him who is humble and contrite in spirit, who trembles at My word. You have Ephesians 1, 3, and 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Okay, what does that look like? We go on in Ephesians 1 and we see in Him, in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This woman drew near to the feet of Jesus and what did she find? She found grace. She found forgiveness. She found cleansing. She brought her unclean to Jesus and she found purification. Let's go back to that passage in 1 John. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That's how it starts. But what is the next promise? 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's incredible. 
I mean, really, consider those two realities. Consider that you are a sinner in desperate need of a Savior who has no business being invited to the dinner party. And then consider that when you go to the Savior with a repentant heart, you don't defile Him. When you make contact with the Lord, when you bring that repentant heart, when I brought my repentant heart before Jesus, I didn't bring Him down to my level of unclean. He redeemed me. He cleansed me from my unrighteousness. He forgave me my sins. It is promised that this is what we find at the throne of grace. We find forgiveness. And that's incredible. What a story. What a day for this woman. What a momentous, life-defining day. She attends this dinner party that she knows she will be scorned at. And she falls at the feet of Jesus, weeping over His feet. And what does He say? He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What a beautiful promise for us. And so yes, I want us to be cognizant of the fact that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. But I don't want us to live in that gloomy, morose, woe is me. I want us to realize that we are that sinner in desperate need of a Savior, and in that Savior we have found grace and mercy and forgiveness and redemption, and we have found cleansing. And just like this woman, what does Jesus say? He says, her sins which are many have been forgiven, and as a result of that, what did she do? She loved him much. She loved him as best as she was able. She loved him with everything she had. Everything she had, she gave to Jesus because she understood the great length to which she was forgiven. And so my question for you here today is, does your love flow out of your understanding of how greatly you have been forgiven? Do you understand just how greatly you have been forgiven? That apart from Jesus, you are destined for hell. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no, there's no debating. There's no arguing. There's no scales that you can maybe tip in your favor. Apart from Jesus, you're going to hell. And then God sent Jesus. And in Jesus, you are forgiven your trespasses. You are washed clean. You are redeemed. You are purified. I mean, if we understand this, then ought our lives not be just an abundance of love for God? If I understand, if I wake up every day and understand, oh my goodness, I've been forgiven. God forgave everything. He forgave perfectly. If I wake up and understand that, how can I go about my day and not pour out a heart of love to the Lord constantly? How can my life not be defined by sacrifice for the Lord? How can I not fall at His feet and wash His feet with my tears, understanding that He has forgiven me entirely? What would the church look like if we lived like this? What would the church look like if we lived like this woman who crashes the dinner party, pouring ourselves out for the Savior who forgave us? What a beautiful church that would be. This is what we have in Jesus. This is what this woman models for us. This is what I desire that my life will be. I woke up this morning and I was forgiven. 
and I already messed up, and I, I, I messed up, and I wish that the guy who cut me off to make the light would get a speeding ticket, and I wished ill on this total stranger. I mean, legitimately, that's embarrassing. That's, that's honestly embarrassing. But I know you guys think I'm perfect, so I give you little glimpses like this so you know I'm not, right? No, this guy cut me off to make the light, and my first thought was, kids, don't ever say this word. I'm not going to swear. Don't worry, parents. But I said, I hope that jerk gets a speeding ticket. That was my immediate thought on the way to church to deliver a sermon. Don't tell me we're not sinners in need of forgiveness and mercy. And the beautiful thing is, as I'm prepping for this, the Holy Spirit says, hmm, that was super loving how you interacted with that guy on the road today. Don't remind me of that. Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me for that. Forgive me for that, that heart of I'm better than this random person. Why would he treat me like that? And here's the beautiful thing. I receive forgiveness. We're promised that when we go to the throne of God and repent, we receive forgiveness. How can my life today not flow out of that love? If I understand that much has been forgiven of me, that a debt just like that 500 denarii, a debt that I could never hope to repay on my own has been forgiven. How can my life not be a sacrifice of love to the one who forgave me? We sang or we listened to that song, Run to the Father. In a moment here, we're going to have a chance to sing it together. We wanted you to listen, to hear the words. In a moment, we're going to get a chance to sing it. And let this song be a prayer for your heart. Listen to this one verse in particular. You saw my condition, had a plan from the start. Your son for redemption, the price for my heart. And I don't have a context for that kind of love. We don't. We can't, I can't explain that kind of love perfectly. I can't wrap my mind around that kind of perfect love. I don't understand. I can't comprehend. All I know is I need you. All I know is I need you. This woman at Simon's house understood that. Simon didn't. Simon missed out on the fact that he needed Jesus just as desperately as this woman did. But this sinful woman, she modeled an understanding of all I know is I need you. Church, I would love for us to be a body that that's all we know. All we know is we need you. Because apart from you, we're never going to do a thing about that debt. We're never going to do a thing about our own sin other than fall at the throne of grace and bring a repentant heart before the Lord. This is what we see in this sinful woman. And it is such a powerful testimony of who Jesus is and what he offers. And so this week, here's your challenge for this week. Here's your assignment for whatever you want to call it. Here's this week. Let's read Jeremiah chapter 2 and 3 in Ezekiel 36. Three chapters. Come on, that's easy. Jeremiah 2 and 3 in Ezekiel 36. And I want, you to sell, I want you to ask yourself two questions as you read these chapters. Do you realize how bankrupt you are apart from Jesus? I mean, as you read Jeremiah 2 and 3, you're going to get a pretty good picture of how bankrupt we are apart from Jesus. So ask yourself, do I really realize who I am apart from Jesus? But then read Ezekiel 36. And ask yourself, do I really realize that he purified me? Do I realize what is offered when I bring a repentant heart before the Lord? When I truly repent at the throne of grace and mercy, do I realize what he has done for me? 
And if we realize those two things, how can our lives not be complete devotion and love to the Lord? And then the prayer is simple. Lord, thank you for forgiving me and cleansing me. Let my love flow out of this understanding. Everybody needs a Savior. There's no difference between Simon and the woman. There's no difference between you and I. There's no difference between us and the person who denies that there is a God in terms of our need for a Savior. Everyone needs a Savior equally. The question becomes, will we acknowledge that or will we refuse to? Will our lives live out love that reflects our deep understanding of our need for a Savior? My prayer is that they will. Please join me in prayer. Lord, I'm blown away. I mean, I'm blown away that you looked at me and you said, yeah, I'm going to send my son to die for him. I can't, I can't fathom that kind of love. I mean, I love, I love my wife, I love my friends, I love my family, but I, I can't wrap my mind around that kind of perfect love, around offering it. The heart that that takes to offer your only son to cleanse us, to purify us, to redeem us. And then you promise us that you are faithful and just to forgive us. Lord, that's incredible. You are perfect grace and mercy. Remind us of that every day. Drive us to our knees with the realization of who we are apart from you and then the realization of who we are in you. The price that you have paid for us how you have redeemed us and cleansed us. Lord, drive us to our knees at your feet every day with the beauty of that realization. Give us hearts of repentance. And then give us hearts of joy. You said to that woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Lord, may we live repentant lives, but we may live peaceful lives as well, knowing that you have forgiven us. You are beautiful in your love, Lord. May the love we show you pour out from our understanding of how much we have been forgiven. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us stand together.